So we are in a sermon series called Sent, the Acts of Christians that Changed the World. The Spirit of God, as we've seen in the book of Acts thus far, has come upon the people. The people have been blessed by this. They've received the Spirit of God, uh, and they're going forward in the mission of making more followers of Jesus. In fact, thousands upon thousands have converted and are becoming followers of Jesus. A man... We saw last week a man who was lame from birth and is 40 years old gets healed. Peter tells him to stand up and walk in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And the man walks and joins them going into the temple. And you might think, this is fantastic. This is really good news what we're seeing so far. And while that's true, the Jewish leaders are not happy. In fact, that's an understatement. The text says they are greatly disturbed. As Luke writes that, I believe it's the same word that he uses in his gospel when he talks about Herod, the king, when Jesus is born, being greatly disturbed, and so he decides to kill babies. Greatly disturbed is seriously disturbed bad news, not good news. And so the Jewish leaders are disturbed. And so as we read together, as I read this and you follow along in Acts chapter 4, I want you guys to ask yourself this question. How do I react? How do I react when I face opposition? Follow along with me. Acts chapter 4, the first 22 verses. The priests and the captain of the temple guard... And the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them, and they began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame... And are being asked how he was healed, then know this. You and the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man that had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats... 
they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you will bless the reading of your word and now bless the preaching of it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Isaac Wagaba once preached at Spring Run Presbyterian Church when we were a little itty-bitty church meeting in a school. Some of you may remember him. He's a man from Uganda, and he is a man who is willing to face severe opposition. Being a pastor in Uganda under the cruel reign of the Muslim dictator Idi Amin, who is estimated killed half a million Ugandan people, Pastor Isaac gathered other pastors together and said, no matter what the opposition, we must stand firm and continue to proclaim the gospel. And they began an underground movement in Uganda to spread the gospel. He was in his home one day with six pastors when some soldiers came to his house. Seeing them, he immediately runs out the back of his house to where his wife and kids are and tells them to flee, to run, and find safety. He goes back into the house then comes out the front door of the house and meets the soldiers there and says, I'm the leader. They hold up a newspaper with his picture on it that says, wanted. He was immediately arrested, taken away, thrown on a truck, beaten severely, and taken to a room with 19 other pastors where they were kept for three days. As they looked around the room... There was blood splatter on the walls, big pools of smeared blood on the floor, and it became obvious that they were in an execution chamber. The soldiers came in and said, we're going to kill you. Confident in Christ, Pastor Isaac said, Do it quickly, because it is the fastest way for us to be with Jesus. Then the bullets began to fly. I hope I never have to face that kind of opposition. Perhaps you and I may face something more similar to Peter and John. Maybe we'll actually have to go to court because of something we hold dear and hold firm as our Christian convictions and values But even if we never have to go to court, we always are on trial in a way in the court of public opinion, right? Because everybody has an opinion and gets to voice it to the neighbors, all over social media, to whomever. And what I'm proposing to you today as we read this text is that as followers of Jesus, you and I are sent even when opposition arises. Because that's what happens to Peter and John. They're opposed. There's two points that I want to talk to you about today. Here's the first one. The first point is this. When opposition arises, you must refuse to compromise the truth. You must refuse to compromise the truth. The second one we'll come to later is when opposition arises, you must find the resources that bring courage. But first, let's focus on this. You must refuse to compromise the truth. I want you to notice something that Peter and John do that I think is quite amazing. And 
Um, I'll read it to you. I'm not going to put it on the screen, but it's in, it's in verse 9. Um, I want you to notice the tactfulness of Peter. He doesn't compromise, but notice his tactfulness. In verse 9, he says, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame, notice what he does. He's like, are you, are you really upset because we were kind and a lame man now walks? Is that really what's going on, why we're on trial? I mean, so that's a bit of tactfulness that Peter is putting forward to say, like, okay, remember what has happened. And we know they remember that later because they recount that, like, hey, it's a good thing and we can't deny that and all the people are happy about it. And so it's a bit of tact that he uses. But even though Peter is using this tactfulness, he does not revert to bashfulness and then go, okay, I'm just going to leave it there. It's all about the kindness of this man. In fact, he then asserts his boldness because he says to them that, um, you know, you didn't act so kindly when you killed Jesus. And, by the way, after you killed him, he rose from the dead. And when Peter says that and makes that claim to this group, this Jewish high court, he's making a claim that undermines half of the court's authority. Because part of the court is made up of a group of people, religious leaders called the Sadducees. Maybe you've heard the name Pharisees before. You might remember that or being Pharisaical, right? The Sadducees are the other half. The Sadducees do not believe that it is possible to have a bodily resurrection. And so when they say Jesus rose from the dead, they're like, oh, no, 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 that doesn't happen. He's undermining their very authority in so saying that. And notice then how they deal with this in verses 16 to 18, okay? Let's put those verses on the screen, actually. Verses 16 to 18, right there. They say, what are we going to do with these men? The ruling council does, the Sanhedrin. They ask, everyone living in Jerusalem knows they performed a notable sign. We cannot deny that. There's Peter's tactfulness, right? But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. What did they do and what did they not do? They said, don't talk about Jesus. They did not say, stop being kind or stop healing people. In other words, what the ruling council was saying is, you can be kind all you want. You can love people. You can help people. Just don't talk about Jesus when you do it. That's what they're telling him to do. That's the compromise that the ruling council is putting on Peter and John. And Peter and John are not okay with that. Like, nope, sorry, we can't stop talking about this Jesus whom we've seen and heard. You can judge for yourselves whether that's right, but we're obeying God and following him. We sang a song earlier, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Charles Wesley, great hymn writer, wrote that song. He had come with his brother John to the colonies, to Georgia, actually, from Great Britain, um, and to evangelize the Indians and the colonists and everything. And they left and went back home. And going back home in England, they actually then got converted. They were very religious before, but not converted. And then they get converted when they go back home. Eleven years after Charles' conversion, he's talking to a friend, and a man says to him, The Lord has done so much for my life, Brother Charles. If I had a thousand tongues, I would praise Christ Jesus with every one of them. And on the 11th anniversary of his conversion, he writes the hymn, Oh, for a thousand 
tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Right? That is, that's the same kind of thing that Peter and John are doing. We can't stop talking about Jesus. In fact, in verse 12, we can put that on the screen too, they don't compromise and they make a very bold claim. They say, look, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. They're making a claim that is saying Jesus is the way to heaven. We cannot stop talking about him. Remember how I told you last week, for you in sales, ABC, always be closing. But I'm telling you, always back to Christ. Always back to Christ. That's your ABC. And some of you who are here are probably thinking, man, that's one of the things I always struggle with about Christianity is it's so... It seems so exclusive. And if you're here and you're, and you're curious about Christianity and you're, you're religious, but you're like, I don't know. I don't know. It's just Christianity is so exclusive. And to say that Jesus is the only way that people, people can be saved seems, just seems ridiculous, honestly. And, and the question comes up, why can't all paths lead to God? And it's a fair question. And so let me just take a moment to try to address that in, in one small way. I mean, books have been written on this, right? I'm going to give you 90 seconds on it. I'd say it's a fair question, and I think you would probably agree with me that people sometimes do things that are wrong, and we'll say those are mistakes, but we also sometimes do things intentionally that are wrong and unjust and unkind towards others, right? Humans do that. You and I have done it. I've done it. I'm sure you've done it too. What the Bible says about that is that's called sin, and it's not just sin against a human being. It's sin against God's moral command, his code, his value system, okay? And so what happens then, what the Bible is saying is there is a God, and there's mankind, and they're separated because of this sin. And the question is, how do you get back to God, right? Okay, it's a great question. But if I want you to think with me for a second. If we're all sinners, and God is not a sinner— then wouldn't a better question than why can't all paths lead back to God be why does any path lead back to God? There's this great divide. We're all sinners and God is the Savior. I mean, you could say that, I mean, God could say, you know what? It's not my fault. I'm sorry, but you screwed it up. You're the one that messed up, so now you've got to deal with evil forever. He doesn't have to provide a way back, right? Theoretically, he doesn't have to provide a way back. But instead, God says, I love people so much, I want to make a way back. I will do that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, my son. Believe in him by faith, that's the way back. Now, if that's true, that's what the Bible is saying, okay? And if that's true, wouldn't it be rather arrogant of us than to to go to this higher being and say, "Um, excuse me, God, That's not good enough. You're going to have to do better than that. You see, because what you really need to do is just let everybody in, even if they don't like your son Jesus. Just let them all in. And let's suppose for a moment that God is so inclusive and open-minded that he says, okay, good idea. Let's let everybody in no matter what. Then what do you do with that? God says, okay, I will. But wouldn't that make God capricious. Wouldn't that make God unjust? Wouldn't that make it so that God who has his son Jesus die on a cross 
as a way to heaven, but not the only way, and there's other ways, wouldn't that make that God not very trustworthy? I mean, wouldn't that make Jesus kind of stupid? Because Jesus being the Son of God, knowing that there's going to be any way, all kinds of ways to get to heaven, and he says, oh yeah, but you know what, I'll just go down there and die. We'll just do that. What a terrible idea. You can get there any way you want. Why would you go die? And, and if it's not stupid, then isn't it at least senseless? It makes Jesus do something that devalues life. It says it's no big deal. You, you see what Christianity is saying is, yes, there's only one way. But there's a way back to God because he loves his people. And he's saying Jesus is that way. So Peter makes this statement, there's no other name. And the Jewish leaders at the same time are making another statement. They're making a statement that says, fear us. We are telling you, as the high ruling court of the land, fear us. Don't go talking in that name. Subtext, you know what we did to that guy, right? He's dead. We killed him. We could do the same to you. They're saying, fear us. And Peter and John are like, look, we're going to fear God and follow Jesus because he's alive. He rose from the dead. So when you might be canceled or when you might be shamed, how do you find strength to go on? What do you do? This leads to this second point, right? When opposition arises, you must find the resources that bring courage One of those verses we read, it said that when Peter and John were speaking, those members of the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, saw their courage. They saw their courage. Now, now where does that courage come from? It may come from lots of places. I'm going to point out two that I think that in this text are suggested to us that, that their courage comes from. The first is this. Their courage comes from the product or the result of what God is doing. That is, they see God at work. Thousands of people are being converted and saved. In fact, it tells us in the passage we just read that the, the number of converts to Jesus grew to 5,000 men. And that doesn't, they're not saying that because women wouldn't believe or to downplay women. They're saying that because in the, in the context of the day, the way you measured uh, a census, so to speak, was how many men because they represented the household, okay? So what is being said here is that not just 5,000 people, but 5,000 households have converted, which is, you know, at least two or three, or maybe, I don't know if they're good Jewish people, and maybe they had a bunch of kids. I don't know how many. It's a lot of people, a lot of people, and they can see that, and, and Peter and John are probably encouraged by that, but more than that, they see all what's going around, like God is doing something. He's on the move. More than that, what happened to that guy? What happened to that? That guy that was begging for the money, who got healed, who was lame from birth, now more than 40 years old, is walking around. Where is he? What happened to him? Because Peter and John had to go sit in jail, but, but where's that guy? Did you notice in verse 14 he makes an appearance? Let's put verse 14 on the screen. This is the court talking again. But since they could see the man who had been healed, 
standing there with them. They're on trial, and he's there. He came back. Now, he may have been summoned and had to come back for the trial. I don't know. He could have run for his life, terrified, and gone into hiding, but he doesn't do that. He comes back because they gave him his legs again. Jesus had healed him. And Peter and John are standing there declaring before this group and this man who is standing there with them that it's not just an act of kindness. It's the power of Jesus and the name of Jesus that brings healing. And that man gets to see them testify in that way. And they must be encouraged that he is there with them, I think. So who have you encouraged? Who have you influenced? Who have you helped study the Bible? Whom have you been kind to to help when they were in need, when they were distraught and afraid, when they had no food, when there was no clothing? Who have you clothed? Who have you taken the cold cup of water to, as Jesus says? Whom have you visited in prison? Whom have you loved? Whom have you been kind to? Seriously, I mean, think of that. And I'm, and I'm sure you have. I'm not saying you haven't. I'm sure you have, but be encouraged. Because what you've done has mattered in people's lives. And inversely, who has encouraged you? Who has influenced you? Whom do you need to go to and say, thank you because you have been a good encouragement in my life? Just take a second right now and think of who that person is and make your thing today. I'm going to thank that person for encouraging me. Call them. Text them today. Talk to them right here afterwards. Maybe they're right here in the room. So one way that they find the resource of courage is from the results of what God's doing, from the, pro- the, the product of what they see, so to speak, right? But, but what I also need to point you to, and this is really important, because what God is doing is very important, but it's not the only way you judge what's happening or measure things. You don't only judge by the circumstances that are happening around, because there's times and seasons where God does great things, and there's times and seasons where, where it seems kind of dry. I want you to see that they go to the power source. They get courage from the power source. That is, they resource by going back to the source. We were told in verse 8 that Peter was filled with the Spirit. That is where he gets courage because the Spirit is empowering him and emboldening him and encouraging him to go about the task that he is given. I mean, imagine this. Jesus dies... He's resurrected from the dead three days later. You see him, then he ascends into heaven, then you don't see him for 50 days. And, um, and so he, well, you see him for a period of time. He ascends into heaven, and then at 50 days after his resurrection, the Spirit comes. Like, you, for two months, you've been on a whirlwind, like, whoa, wow, what? And then people start believing, and there's thousands of households converting around the city of Jerusalem. You're like, this is amazing. And the next thing you know, like you're in jail. What happened? God, it was going so well. I mean, I had so many great dreams and visions of what this might be. And Peter and John are sitting in jail overnight. And yet somehow in that long night, 
maybe that dark night of the soul, as they sit in jail, they are encouraged. They don't come out of there to the court timid, bashful, discouraged. They are encouraged because they have found strength in the Lord. And it doesn't explain all of what happens there. There will be more stories in Acts where we do see that. But they found strength overnight in that jail. Strength from the Spirit of God. From directly from the source. And they found strength from the source of Jesus. I want to take you back to verse 13. Let's put that on the screen if you would. Verse 13 says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note. You've been with Jesus. The power source wasn't their formal education. It wasn't their CV. It wasn't all the things that they had done or accomplished. The, the Ivy League school they had graduated from. The source of their power was they know Jesus. And he's alive. And they know that. And that's the game changer. Like, okay, you don't understand. Our friend died. He's alive again. So whatever you got to say is going to be secondary to that. That's their education. They walked with Jesus. They saw Jesus love people. And they watched him die. And they saw him after he was dead. And risen again. Do you put more focus on education and intellectual ability or on knowing Jesus? Yesterday, we had Presbytery. You're like, a what? Yeah, just, it's a group of regional churches that partner together in ministry and, and, and help govern one another and ordain people into ministry. And yesterday, there was a man who came under care, which is the first step towards be, a four-step process towards becoming a pastor. And his name is Shang Wak Deng. He is from South Sudan, and he grew up there during the war. And when he was seven years old, his parents sent him off so that he would survive. He eventually comes to America, lives next door to West End Presbyterian Church, and they reach out to him, and he uh, was a Christian and has grown in his faith tremendously. In fact, he just graduated from VCU, which was a big accomplishment for him. But before all of that, two of his pastors said, that we highly commend Shane Walk to you because he is the godliest man in this room. And I'm not exaggerating. And what they meant by that, I think, was here's a man who doesn't have all the American upbringing, doesn't have the education system. I mean, he's getting there, but, but he's a man, through his life experience, who knows Jesus, the risen, living Jesus. Listen to him. It drips from his mouth. He speaks of the grace of God freely. Do you know this Jesus? Knowing Jesus does not mean you have to be ignorant and uneducated. That's not what this is saying. Being educated does not mean you don't need Jesus. You do. If you sign up for a race... 
usually you're going to prepare for that race. If you sign up to go on the men's backpacking weekend, you're probably going to do a little bit of preparation before you go jaunting out onto the trail, slugging a pack around for 20 miles. If you want to learn piano, you have to practice. If you want to know Jesus, ask him. Go read about him in the Gospels. Those who walked with him have told you about him. Pray to the Spirit to get courage from the Spirit. Say, show me this Jesus. Get in a Bible study with others to have them help you learn more about him. Because this Jesus is where you will find your courage. No matter whatever the opposition is you're facing. When Pastor Isaac and the others were in that execution room and the soldiers started firing... The pastors all started falling floor, falling to the floor dead, and, and Isaac started falling too. And as he fell, he was struck by a bullet in the arm instead of the chest. Soldiers left the room thinking they were all dead. They came back sometime later, bloated all the dead bodies onto a truck, and drove the truck out into the forest and threw all the bodies into a large pit that was a mass grave. All 19 of Isaac's friends and pastors were dead. Somehow, Isaac had survived. He crawled out of the pit. He nearly died, doesn't remember anything after that. He was found by some ranchers, it turns out, and taken to, get, uh, taken to a hospital to get cared for. After recovering, he went to look for his family. His house had been burned to the ground, but his family had escaped, and he found them and reunited with them. When he lay wounded and dying, he knew God was calling him to express the kindness of Jesus to others and to speak the name of Jesus to others. In a war-torn country with kids who didn't have parents, he began an orphanage called Canaan Children's Home. And he did that because he knows Jesus who conquered death and lives again. And Isaac knows he too will live again. Brothers and sisters, do you know this? Do you know this, that we've been sent with this Jesus? This Jesus. When you face opposition and refuse to compromise the truth and, and do find resources for courage because of what God is doing, because of the Spirit in you and because of this Jesus who lives. Right? ABC. Always back to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, the battle is yours. It is a great battle. It is a spiritual battle. And yet you have chosen to use us as weapons in this battle. You have given us scripture, which is a great use to us. Encouragement, sharper than a double-edged sword. It is a weapon we have. And you've given us tongues to tell people about Jesus. Hands to serve people with the love of Jesus. Would you use us Use this church, use your churches around Richmond, around the country, around the world to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to be the tongues that don't stop proclaiming your name. We ask in the name of Jesus, amen.